He had uh, discussions with uh, Ginger Cruz, a um, legendary media personality and, uh, and uh, global business consultant. Uh, she'll be joining us in a couple minutes. Anyone wishing to join the conversation can call in at 477-5757. That's 477-5757. Uh, also, uh, just to mention, uh, again, uh, next week we'll have Gary Hiles, Chief Economist of the Department of Labor. Uh, he will be discussing the uh, latest unemployment statistics, which should be uh, issued sometime this week, and his views on the uh, on the uh, uh, island's uh, economic outlook and in uh, a number of sectors and and how we have uh, we have uh, uh, gone through uh, how how much shape our economy has come through. Um, in um, over this uh, COVID nineteen emergency, and uh, to, to uh, uh, Ginger will be joining us in a couple of minutes to discuss the uh, the larger global situation and how it uh, uh, may affect Guam. Uh, we also will have on some future programs staff from the Bureau of Statistics and Plans uh, to discuss the uh, latest uh, issuance of the uh, annual statistical yearbook with statistics on uh, on population and housing and demographics of Guam and trade statistics and uh, a number of valuable pieces of information. Uh, that was delayed because of a dislocation of the COVID-19 uh, 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 situation, but uh, Monica Goro, a planner for the Bureau of Statistics and Plans and her team, have, uh, have, have uh, pushed it forward and, uh, and come up with a new statistical uh, yearbook, and we'll be going over some of the highlights of that as well. But uh, to again, to continue our discussion is uh, Ginger Cruz. Ginger, are you with, him, with us? Back again. Oh, back again. There we go. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, Ginger, um, like I said, uh, 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 a really interesting discussion about uh, about China. Uh, so much uh, so that I had to resist the temptation of interrupting your marvelous discourse in order not to uh, get in the way of. But I'll I'll talk more about China when you know on some other show when I have a more boring guest. But <laughs> uh, what there are a couple things um, that I wanted to get your perspective on as someone who has uh, uh, been exposed to. Um, uh, a, a number of uh, people involved in uh, major diplomatic uh, affairs and geopolitical affairs and, and being an international business consultant yourself and who knows Guam, that uh, about your take on, on current global uh, economic trends and, um, and how they may uh, impact Guam. You, there is this discussion uh, ongoing that the U.S. set for this major economic explosion because of so much pent-up demand and given the uh, uh, the uh, uh, heavy uh, uh, success rate of the vaccinations, which, by the way, uh, Guam is out-surpassing. I think the latest rate is like only 37% of the population of U.S. of the U.S. is vaccinated. And yeah. we, we passed at least the halfway mark and well on our way to getting to 80%. Uh, herd immunity, um, but uh, what what is your take on the local global economic situation, or does it does it starkly uh, differ, like between, uh, say, the U.S. and Italy, or the U.S. and Japan, or but the, but in today's global economy, they're all kind of in- interconnected, aren't they? They are interconnected, and Guam really is sort of at the end of that connection line, um, which is why we sometimes miss out on some of the economic activity, because, you know, it, it's hard. It's got to trickle all the way down to Guam. Um, I think the first thing I find surprising is um, I think people should give a lot more credit to Guam. I think the international community and I think people in Guam should take a lot more credit, because Guam has really done a fabulous job in navigating the COVID pandemic. I mean, potentially, this could have been a huge blow. Uh, Guam has such a fragile health care system. It's great to see the governor, you know, talking about building a new hospital because, I mean, it's, when you're out in the, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean where a medevac plane is going to take hours to get you off the island, you have to have really a robust medical capability. And the fact that there's only GMH and GRMC and, and Naval Hospital for the military means that, you know, that, that's got to really be issue number one. And, and when COVID started, I mean, you know, I was here for a lot of, I was here from the moment mm-hmm. it started, and I was here for you know, almost half the year. And it was really frightening to think what would happen if this really did manifest like it's doing in India, like it did in Italy. And, and really, thanks to all of the actions that were taken uh, by the government, by the governor, by public health, by, you know, doctors, that Guam did amazing and, and managed to navigate this whole thing and is now on the other side and really sort of facing a success story with, with all of the, the vaccinations. So a couple things come to mind. So number one, 
there's going to be revenge tourism. Everybody knows it. Everybody's talking about it. Europe is already jumping on that bandwagon. The number of people who booked, you know, I, I was sharing some of the articles with you, the number of people who booked the most expensive trip and the longest trip of their lives so, is, so, is continuing so Ginger, to soar. Before we get into that, Ginger, before we get into perhaps you could expound on what revenge tourism is. Yeah, so revenge tourism is what happens when families haven't been spending their money. So the ones who still kept their jobs have been saving up, and the ones who normally take their family on a trip once a year, twice a year, haven't been able to leave their house for, you know, a year and a half now or a year. They are bound and determined to take the most exotic, longest tourist vacation that they could possibly take. They've, they've just been so pent up that they've just got to get out. Where, where normally, you know, their, their daily lives, they go out to restaurants and, you know, have other ways. They've literally been locked in their homes on Zoom calls for the last, you know, however long. So all the people who were not uh, economically, um, you know, destroyed by the COVID epidemic, which is which is a lot of people, but then there's the, the other, you know, percentage of people who have kept their jobs but just have been locked up. And, so, and, and that includes in Japan, that includes in Korea, it's all over the world. So there's this phenomenon that's being talked about in international tourism circles, and it's called revenge tourism. And people are going to travel to more unique destinations, more expensive destinations. They're going to go longer and farther and, and places they would not have normally gone. And Guam could really reap the benefits if it thought big. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you front load it. Like, you, you, you take the money from GDB and you go buy a couple of ads on CNN Domestic or CNN International. And you show gorgeous pictures of Guam's pristine beaches and the beautiful air and the fact that it's not crowded. It's, you know, for people who are, who are still wary of COVID but who just want to go to someplace that they normally wouldn't have thought of. Maybe even invoke Guam, images, uh, maybe invoke Guam images of Theodore Roosevelt. Just now. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If Guam were to do that now, it could plant the seed in people's heads early so that when people start thinking about it and as they all start, you know, as the United States starts to reach herd immunity, hopefully, and and people are vaccinated and everybody starts to have a a system for how we're going to do this, Guam could be on the top of people's minds and could potentially reap a great benefit Mm -hmm. and raise its profile, not only with the story about how it's overcome COVID, but the fact that it's an amazing destination, that it's part of the United States, that it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. So, I mean, something that people really, they need to think big, right? Go big or go home. But they need to go big. And it's a great time because the whole world is stuck watching their TVs and, and you know, looking at social media and trying to figure out what, what they're going to do. And Guam could seize the moment and do something really big. Yeah, well, you know, there. It, I think there's a great opening in the fact that they're able to allow people to come in who are vaccinated with the, with the uh, proper vaccination documents. Uh, my my sister-in-law just came in, as you know, Sunday night, uh, just uh-huh. under the gun, and she uh, when they announced it uh, on Friday morning our time, uh, that allowed her uh, Friday morning in Kansas City time to go get the second piece of validation of her, of her vaccination card, and so she was able to come in here without, uh, uh, without going to the quarantine. And so it occurs to me. Uh, there's a there's an opening for um, in building tourism uh, uh, outlook here. However, uh, on the on the uh, on the uh, of course the uh, the counter side here, you know the um, uh, the you know Pacific Area Travel Association, Pata, you're familiar with that one. They recently come up with its 2021 through 2023 forecast, and looking forward to 2023, they they have three scenarios, and and the best scenario still has below 2019 numbers, and the worst scenario has it at 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 half of 2019 numbers. That's not tourism projection for next year, but projection for the year after next year. Uh, so given given that situation, I mean, the, maybe U.S., again, that's why I'm trying to uh, get your thoughts on to the extent that the speculation of a pent-up um, uh, uh, pent uh, economic boom there, but you, is this either revenge tourism, is it is it worldwide, or is it is is it just U.S. or Eurocentric? No, it's it's worldwide, mm. and, and I think those numbers and that forecast is probably based on status quo, mm. based on everything going back to normal, normal trip plans by normal families. Yeah. If, if Guam were to try and do something extraordinary to make itself stand out and to really go for the ring on that one and try and get people to come, I think you would have 
a different forecast. So, so there's that. But the other thing that Guam, you know, in, in as a whole, Guam is in an extremely good position. Because number one, we know there's going to be military buildup. Absolutely, mm-hmm. whether Indo-PACOM is fully funded for you know Pacific Defense Initiatives, uh, we know that the money that was diverted for the wall is now coming back in, and we know that there are a lot of plans for uh, buildup and strengthening of U.S. military on Guam, and that's going to naturally flow through to the economy. And then, of course, there's all of the infrastructure investments that the federal government is making which are also a huge boon, and if Guam can can really ramp up its grant writing capability and it can go after these funds, I mean, mm-hmm. public works can go after new highway grants, and instead of driving on all those roads which are, you know, patched up and are still probably the same roads that my dad designed back in the uh-huh. 70s, we well, can we, get well, some, we preserved them for you your, your, We preserved them in your dad's memory. You understand that we never never bothered to fix them, being in just for your, in your dad, in, to honor your dad's memory, you know, so... <laughs> You're welcome. You know, I, I, it's the, the one road that he was the most proud of was Route 16. So oh. he and John Castro and Furman Paz and Francis Taitino, they, they were the highway division back in the day, right? And yeah. I remember when they got the first Wang computer and they, and they designed that road with, like, the curvature so that the rain would run off of it and it would gently sort of help steer your car around the corner and... And it's still like that. But, I mean, the infrastructure program that the Biden administration has in place, Guam needs to tap that because it's a wonderful opportunity to build up the infrastructure for the future, to really strengthen what we've got, build up the roads, build up the infrastructure, reinvigorate the economy, because as the military interest increases in Guam, so too is global commerce going to increase on Guam. So you're talking about cyber command, you're talking about space command, you're talking about joint training with countries in the region, you're talking about all sorts of opportunities and the interconnectivity of the Pacific with a whole focus shifting from Europe to the Pacific, Mm -hmm. Guam is at the center of it all. And it's not just military. There's going to be a corollary of economic interest. I mean, look look at Taiwan. They are very strategic. They understand what's going on with China. Taiwan really wants to build a relationship. They want to have opportunities to invest, opportunities to expand. Koreans are, are wanting to do the same thing in Guam. Japan is in the same position. So international investment on top of increased federal government spending, on top of military expansion, and just with the icing on top of revenge tourism, if we can attract it to Guam, Guam could be poised to have the best decade ever. Mm. It's just a question of having the vision and having the the capability to really strategically position Guam to go after all of these opportunities, put them together so that they're all mutually supporting, and then see how far we can go so that we can make Guam so enticing and so strong that we can bring some of the, the young men and women who have you know gone off to college and gotten jobs in the States mm-hmm. or in other parts of the world and entice them to come back and be part of this resurgence and part of this rebuilding on Guam after COVID is is put to rest and and we all get that booster shot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, the larger point you're making, though, I I think, is that the the tourism market out there, at least for the near term, is going to be uh, substantially different from the tourist market that was pre-COVID, and the attitude yeah. of travel is different. And, and the point you're arguing is that instead of instead of uh, approaching tourism in the in the in the standard way that's been done for for decades here, it's it's time you're recommending uh, that we sort of expand um, our outlook on it and and be creative about uh, uh, coming uh, marketing Guam in a way different to attract a different type of traveler that's going to be out there because even i can i can imagine you know revenge revenge tourists are ready to go but they're not going to waste their shot by going to a standard old place they're going to look for something new aren't they exactly well and you also you've got to think about another thing right talk about tourism for high wealth individuals one of the things that guam i mean i remember guam when i was a kid and and the quality of the tourists at the time they were more wealthy. They were the, the high-end Japanese honeymooners, and so the quality of the restaurants, they were more expensive, and, and you know, that was the heyday of when Chumon Sands got built and all these other things got built. And then slowly, like, you know, the hotels sort of eased back. They they didn't invest quite as much money in, in you know, 
fancying up the rooms and everything got a little bit older and a little bit moldy and the paint got a little bit worn. And instead of really rejuvenating at or going after the high value ones, everybody sort of lowered their sights. Okay, let's get the budget airlines in. Let's get let's make up the reduction in quality with an increase in quantity. Which, you know, so so then the explosion of, you know, tourists who come to shop at Ross all day. Which, you know, at, at some point the economic benefit of that becomes less and less and Guam gets less revenue from mm-hmm. that because there's less money being spent by these tourists because you're going for the lower end tourists. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you get to the point where you've got, you know, the Santa Fe Hotel, which used to be I mean, it's one of the most beautiful properties on mm-hmm. Guam. Absolutely. And and it's just they haven't had the, the ability and, and the funding to really, you know, completely redo it and turn it into high-end mm-hmm. location. So instead, it's it's appealing to the lower end, and w- which is another reason why, you know, tourism revenue is going down. Guam, you know, one of the things that it needs to have imagination. It needs to think bigger. It needs to say, hey, you know, if the governor is able to move the hospital and start a whole new hospital uh, campus, you could use the property where GMH is now. You could use the property of the old GMH, which has just been sitting there for I don't even know how long, and you could do something really visionary. You could put together a seven-star resort, and I'm talking five-star resort. I'm talking seven-star resort, because nobody wants to go to the seven-star resorts that much in Dubai anymore. There's so much chaos in the Middle East. What if we were to build to the high-value tourists, the high-wealth individuals, so you could have elite you know, helicopter tours and elite boat tours, and you could put in some super high-end restaurants and hotels, the amount of money that that would bring into Guam, that would then wash over, mm-hmm. and it would start... And then, of course, you, you bring in these high-wealth individuals, a lot of them are potentially investors. They'll look at the island and go, you know what? We should, we should build a new mall. I mean, there's all sorts of things we could do. And you could actually raise the quality of life by coming up with just a completely novel idea. So instead of looking like, what can we do to attract back the same people that were here last year who left, it's a great reset button. COVID gave us an opportunity to hit the reset button. And I just think if there was a bigger vision, I just think if people, you know, stop saying, oh, we couldn't do it, or oh, it's too expensive, or oh, that's, you know, you're, you're just daydreaming. And, and really, if you put your mind to it, and tried to make it happen, and the business community chipped in, and everybody just started, you know, set a goal and went for it, it's an opportunity to really remake Guam in a new century and have us economically positioned in the center of so much activity and so much interest and so much focus Mm -hmm. that it could really make a difference for the next generation that lives on Guam. Or hopefully something sooner. And uh, and uh, after that, um, by the way, anyone wishes to join the conversation, call in at 477-5757. That's 477-5757. But I was about to say after that amazing discourse here, you will be, I'm sure you'll be pleased to, to hear that uh, some time ago at the governor's direction, the Bureau of Statistics and Plans uh, submitted and, uh, a grant application and, and was awarded a grant from the U.S. Economic Development Administration to fund a, um, a study to for repositioning and rebranding for Guam as a tourist destination in, in order to take into account uh, the changing tourist market out there globally. And uh, we'll be issuing the uh, RFP for that out, out soon and, and getting a, so to, uh, to sort of help me tap on that new creative thinking and re, re, reimagining of Guam as a tourist destination to take take advantage not not only to adapt in the new circumstances but take advantage of the new opportunities some of which which you uh, uh, sort of outlined far more eloquently than I could. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, well, uh, you know, I'll tell you what. Here's the perfect example. Did you ever think in our lifetime that we would be talking about booking a cruise on a space craft to be able to jump on one of Elon Musk's, uh, you know, rocket launchers and and go out and tour the tour the planet, you yeah. know, and and be I, able to I, see I, it from I, from outer space. Right, I mean, it, I, it just, think about it. I, I think I think about it. I think about it less though right? after I saw so, it on Saturday Night Live. But yeah, you always see your point. Big yeah. and did it, and and he's on as well on his way to to realizing this, which you know was an impossibility when we were kids. It was like a, a fable. We'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, right, that'll happen, like in the future with the Jetsons, and and we're actually seeing engineers and scientists working on uh, craft that are going to be able to go into 
you know, special orbit around the Earth and take people up into outer space, which is which is incredible. So if, if we can do that as a world, Guam can certainly reimagine our future and think big and, and go for it. And, and even if you don't get all the way there, if you even make it halfway there, it, right. it could be something. Yeah, there's not that much of us. We only need that much. But, uh, you know, I, I, I get your point. You know, some of it is, is what you're talking about speaks to the whole um, changing economic environment and, and, uh, and, and people adapting to it and how they're affected with COVID-19. I'll, I'll give you uh, I'll, I'll just, just as an example. Uh, you know, the, the uh, conventional wisdom, wisdom has been for quite some time that, you know, malls are dying as, and things people buy more online. Uh, as opposed to um, a brick and mortar, and particularly as in the collapse of uh, of uh, major retail giants, you know, um, uh, you know, like Sears and others, you know, that used to be the uh, the uh, what do they what do they call it? the the ground uh, uh, the the, um, the very the, true yeah, yeah right the source source on on these malls here. However, but but then we had an interesting trend uh, nowadays where, for example, Amazon buys Whole Foods. Which is, a, 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 if nothing else, a brick and mortar operation, and and then and a lot of the discussion right now is that is it's not that the necessarily the malls are are are, are, are collapsing; it's that the old style retail establishments in the malls are collapsing, and then what uh, what has to be uh, what's been attempted here is sort of reinvent uh, the retail experience and tap into that. There's a number of uh, uh, enterprises that that have sort of thrived because they concentrated on the experience. Best Buy is a good example of this. Uh, and, and, and the fact that, you know, you think if things are, brick and mortar was collapsing, why is Amazon buying Whole, Whole Foods? And it's not just um, uh, uh, for the delivery of groceries, but to tap into that emotive experience. And so as we talk about um, uh, adapting to, um, uh, to changing circumstances, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I, it's, uh, it's, it sort of speaks to um, uh, just being creative about it. And uh, in, in many ways, the COVID-19 has sort of opened people's, uh, uh, sort of perspectives on different ways of doing it. I think teleworking and uh, and virtual meetings are so much more in vogue in 2021 than they were in 2019 uh, because being exactly. a practical experience and and people exactly. sort of have adapted to this. And 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 by the way, this sort of this sort of approaches is is, um, is sort of influencing economic planning. Uh, uh, I've had a discussion with Mel Mendiello, the administrator of the Guam Economic Development Authority, and one of their projects is the creation of a uh, what's termed as a Silicon Village, uh, sort of like a Guam version of a Silicon Valley in which you, you create that uh, sort of crucible and interplace between, uh, uh, between uh, technological um, uh, you know, industries and, uh, and, and services that are related to it in one physical location. However, thinking that has sort of evolved. And so instead of creating a, a Silicon Village on an actual piece of property, but creating a Silicon Village that is networked. Uh, with uh, with uh, you know technological uh, companies and you train the workforce to, to work in this one. So instead of being one place, it's just network as a, as a Silicon Village through things like uh, virtual meetings and interconnectivity, and and that's and 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 those sort of issues. In which case here, you don't necessarily need uh, an actual physical property to do so. Particularly when you're a small compact island, you just need people to be able to communicate each other uh, uh, freely uh, in a manner that that forms. Uh, that sort of nexus of uh, information to uh, to uh, creativity and the creation of uh, of economic tuning and jobs, and so yeah, I, I can I can see that um, you know uh, th that has occurred to me several times when considered the for the economy. Well, what kind of economy? And uh, quite often, you know, people as they look at the out coming out of COVID nineteen is a reversion to normalcy. Well, I don't think we're going back to normal anytime soon. You know, I feel too much has sort of changed, particularly in people's perspective. And um, given given that uh, sort of look here, how wh what is your take on 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 sort of the um, um, global uh, societal zeitgeist and and, and changes? I think we in the in the interface we've seen a number of major major changes, but the whole reaction uh, to George Floyd's uh, murder. And the Black Lives Lies explosion, which you know, gosh, I have to remember that's just last year, um, uh, or just you know, just the uh, yeah, just last year, and um, and in in some respects, the uh, changing attitudes on the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict, and a number of other things. Um, 
it, it's it's uh, what what is your take on, on how how you think uh, are are you, any ideas or uh, uh, as to as you see with these changing social trends? As someone who has been involved um, as a matter of because your business with not only um, other nations but other cultures. Well, so social trends, I, I really think there's, there's a couple of things at play. Um, it, it's, it's a sine wave. The, the world and humankind tends to go through these periods where things that were perhaps in existence but suppressed mm. um, with a variety of triggers all of a sudden get surfaced. And... You know, each time everybody reacts as if, oh, this is the, the worst it's ever been, or, the, you know, this is something we really need to deal with. But if you look back through history, and I know, Ty, you're probably one of the best people who's just read about every single corner of history. If you look it's at just history, a lot of these types books. of societal convulsions happen all the time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, every, every couple decades, there's, you know, some other major change in how society views itself and and views the way that they are going to behave in in a global world and and with interconnectivity and with the internet and with uh, you know ubiquitous amounts of communication from every sector you have a global dialogue that is going on now where you can have someone in the middle of you know, a, a farmhouse in Zimbabwe watching, you know, a TED talk that was published in Chicago. So, so global thoughts and concepts are transferable and people are all starting to, to see what's happening. And, and I think it all goes back to sort of the anthropological roots of it all, where, mm-hmm. you know, human nature, there's good and bad, but there's us and others. People always define themselves in their tribe or in their group or in their family and will always naturally instinctively be careful of others or suspicious of others because that's a threat to their way of life and their way of thinking and it's it's just the same thing happening but just with a completely different set of tools um i don't think a lot of the things that are happening now are new i think they always existed it's just you're seeing them more clearly now because, you know, ever since the cell phone was invented, everybody's ability to hold it up and record a horrible moment that before this would have gone completely unknown to the world, it's made a major, major difference in how people are viewing things and how people are viewing each other. And, And the access to information that people have no longer is it one-sided. Now you can see both sides. I mean, and, and you, even you know, down to the, to the television shows. You know, you you look. Israel created a show called Fauda on Netflix, mm. and if you watch it, it actually is a is a pretty. Even though it's produced by Israel, it's a pretty fair showing of the plight of the Palestinians and the challenges of the Israelis, and it gives you a, a good sense of both of their perspectives and both of their points of view. Yeah. So uh, it's a good show, a folks, level, by the way. Uh, Ginger's human, recommendation. Human nature is not going to change. Yeah. But I think that the, the global communication of all of these ideas and concepts will hopefully enlighten mm-hmm. and will hopefully lead towards sort of this generational positive change, which, mm-hmm. which has happened throughout human history, and that maybe we can come out of the other side better people. Mm-hmm. Well, two things I want to mention. The Ginger's recommendation. I have been watching Fallout on, at, on Netflix, though. I I stopped when they brought in the doctor to do operation on the brother-in-law. But uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll 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 go back to that. But the other thing I want to um, sort of posit to you, Ginger, isn't what you just discussed uh, a sort of um, amazing contrast to China insisting on a system where it takes seventy-two hours to get a communication through. Uh, from from um, from Washington to Beijing, and it, it sort and it can, and given their um, other efforts to uh, control the uh, internet, it sort of it, it it strikes me as a sort of a losing battle against you know the tide it's of history. It's a diplomatic tool. They they do that on purpose. It, it's a diplomatic tool. They want the world to go at their pace. 
you know, there was, ever since I, so I, I recommended Fowder. The other thing that I'd recommend is there was a book, which I absolutely was just fascinated by mm-hmm. when I, I read it when I was in my teens. It was called Chung Kuo. It was a whole series of books. Oh, there was like yes. 13 of them. The, the science, this famous science fiction series. Exactly. Yes. And it's this science fiction series about China taking over the world. Well, and, and, more and probably Chinese global, urban growth. Global climatic change, you know, destroying the planet, and yeah. how did people continue to live in a world like that? And it's just funny that, you know, now you fast forward to 2021, and here we are, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, to me, though, uh, whenever I hear this discussion about China taking over here, I, I, I'm sort of... Um, uh, I'm old enough to remember when this, the 21st century was supposed to be the ja- Japan century. And although Japan has remained, remained important, it never rose to this sort of um, uh, specter. I mean, and, and I'm struck that as many books are out there that are predicting China taking over the world, the latest chance for China, and, you know, it's, it's, it's like the same number of books that were out of when they were predicting Japan taking over, and Japan's <laughs> going to be done, and all the stuff. And they stuff didn't there. really mention Korea, which is interesting, because nowadays most people would rather buy a Korean television than a Japanese television. Yeah, but, but you know, but, well, see, Korea is a divided peninsula, so they always, that always offsets, uh, you know, but they have North Korea, so therefore, you know, they got their own problems. But Japan was supposed to be this mammoth thing that was going to take over the world and, and, and dominate everything. And, uh, um, and, it, and there's a number of science fiction novels based on that, by the way. Um, it usually involves them using Japanese technology to subvert American military prowess. But in any event, the, and, and so whenever I hear, you know, this China, I, it's clearly China is asserting itself. And, and Japan, by the, uh, by the way, just to put, uh, put in context, it still remains an important power. It just never became the the sort of global competitor to the U.S. And now, and we have this discussion about China uh, taking over stuff. And by the way, Chen Kuo was more than about China taking over. It's also about the in- sprawling urbanization in the entire planet. So everybody lived in this one city that sprawled yeah, the planet. And the insurgency you know. of, of the West. <laughs> it's a fascinating book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a fascinating series of books. Uh, actually, was. you know, real thick books well. too. You know, but you know, so you. In any event, I, I, I sort of digress. So, but when you take a look at the number of uh, challenges of, uh, in front of time, including this huge demographic bomb that has uh, that's it's, it's coming as a consequence of their uh, one-child policy, um, and and uh, in essence, they're going to they're as this they for the last 20 years, you've had this big bulk of the more productive uh, uh, generations of the population that has driven a lot of uh, China's economic growth. Well, they're all going to retire at once, and if you look at the the uh, the succeeding uh, generations, they're much much smaller. So you're going to have a huge number of non-productive citizens being supported by much fewer people than you have now. And China's never, at this point, never quite mastered consumer-driven economic growth, but right. that's going to con- constrain here. They have uh, a major water problem. Uh, I mean, they've lost like 20,000 rivers in the last couple of decades, and a lot of the, the water uh, uh, sources they have now, a lot of them, I mean, by China's own statistics, are, 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 not, uh, are not drinkable. And their big problem is that a bulk of the water is in the tropic regions in southern China, and they're all farmland. It's in the northern part of China. Exactly, and, and then how about the pollution? You can't even the breathe the air in Shanghai for several yeah. months a year. I have not been to Shanghai that, that often, but but I do recall visiting Xi'an, where the terracotta warriors are, and, and man, the clouds were just, just there. So the, they've had that major problem. And going back to our discussion we had in the first block, uh, you know, uh, you know I, 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 I'm going to go get into that part. Is, is in the analysis of why China is actually doing this. I mean, it's more than just uh, asserting their power. They're... Um, they're very aggressive diplomatically. Um, they're sort of adopting the posture of nationalism, and uh, uh, to do so here, and it's sort of it's it's. it's this is not my analogy, but uh, some people have compared this to the boisterous schoolyard bully, who is doing this not necessarily because yeah, he feels confident, but because he feels insecure. And uh, so I, w- I wonder about that concern. I mean, I mean we, we, in, and I, I didn't interrupt you, uh, uh, Ginger, but um, some of your discourse in the first block sort of um, it, it was it was um, it, it was very reminiscent of discussion of, of the Soviet Union and the Cold War. Exactly. However, however, I'm not sure how some of that relevant, particularly when it comes to things like ideology and the Cold well, War. I mean, itself, there, there yeah. is an ideological 
challenge here because, I mean, they are, for all intents and purposes, 1.6 million people, a yeah. billion people, yeah. run under a communist system. I mean, they people like to act like, oh, communism is, is you know, they, they forget. I mean, China is the example of a fully functioning communist massive power well, it's, that it's, is now also the number two economy in the world and, and in some cases you know it's a fully to, functioning authoritarian regime i'm not sure if it's a exactly. fully functioning communist it's, regime well, anymore yeah exactly it's, it's a hybrid so ideology i mean in terms of the repression of hong kong in terms mm-hmm. of the one china policy over taiwan i mean ideology is a big issue for but, them but, but in the, addition to domestic security because they want that thousand kilometers around china to be safe and it really comes down to a competing vision for asia china believes it as the biggest most dominant power in asia it should be the one to determine what is the vision for asia and the united states is sort of on the side of well no it's it's a global issue and it should remain open and everybody should be able to access it and China should not be able to unilaterally decide what the vision is for Asia and that's really at the heart of there is an ideological competition that is going on there and Uh, and this competition of influence I I will concede that one I'm not sure how ideological it is uh, but but step back a, a bit, Ginger, and you know this this aggressive policy by China and and the invoking of nationalism and and the military power uh, power moves is actually a relatively new phenomenon. Maybe for the past decade, if you recall, after uh, Nixon went to China, a good part of what uh, of what China was to was to bring a, a positive image, except for hiccups like Tiananmen Square. And uh, in the, uh, the the first Beijing Olympics, and and uh, and you know there are, there are sort of if your if your goal is influence, there's a sort of trade off when you start doing things that diminish your influence or diminish your reputation. Aggressive uh, talk diminishes your 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 influence and your reputation. Uh, ups- uh, upsetting the normal rules of international behavior, like the treatment of the Uyghurs, is any and the thing with Hong Kong. That how does that? It may advance China's control of those areas, but it, how does that in- advance China's influence? I would I would posit that it's a step back. So why do you do that? Unless you've done the calculus uh, that there is something to gain from that, and if there's nothing to be gained from uh, doing. Uh, that sort of aggressive behavior uh, against rules of uh, of, uh, of sort of accepted international behavior here, and then it's the worst trade-off. That means their other concern is is sort of internal, uh, like the schoolyard bully who is actually reflecting their, his own insecurities. Okay, uh, so, but look at it from China's perspective. Then, from China's perspective, the United States is the global bully because yeah, the United but, States is the one who is forcing its ideology on everybody, and the United States is like the greatest supporter of Israel, and Israel essentially is committing apartheid with the Palestinians. So, I mean, the the hypocrisy in foreign policy is huge. I mean, as a a lifetime member of the Council on Foreign Relations, there is not a country in the world that, or or maybe there's a few, or maybe Switzerland, but there's, there's very few countries in the world that can claim a perfect record, that can say, we're always on the side of sweetness and light and you know every I mean because there's always an underlying piece and in the case of China I mean when it comes to the Uyghurs to to grossly oversimplify the issue with the Uyghurs mm-hmm. they view it as a national security concern and that is the way uh, well, that in the, the, their the Nazis had the same view of the Jews by the way so you know the way that they handle it the Nazis had the same view of the Jews by the way and 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 what the Chinese are doing is is quite uh, in many respects, accurately characterized as genocidal, but in, in, it was setting that whole discussion aside. And, and what Israel's really doing is not. No, I'm not. I'm not sort of getting into, into that in terms of the values here. I'm just sort of pointing out here that all this be, uh, behavior and attitudes um, by China is a recent development. Now, in, in during the Cold War, you could almost with a straight line uh, show uh, the um, the uh, Russia's attitude towards the West and towards the United States in the post-war period. And, and its ideological roots, which you know, going going through the um, uh, the mid twentieth century to the later century, Russia was very, the Soviet Union was very much an ideological um, entity, and it was ex- exporting an ide- ideology uh, across. China's exporting influence, which is not the same thing. And again, there there seems to be, a, from from my perspective here, is. My, my humble perspective, not being the internationally recognized global business executive that you are, <laughs> uh, and, and never having been asked to, like, you know, sit in on the Council for Relations, I've actually been a member of it. 
um, it, it just seems to me that a, a lot of it uh, seems to, instead of uh, att attaching to some long-standing Chinese historical uh, uh, tradition or traditional approach here, I think it's maybe a reflection of, uh, of, of, of changes in China and changes in, in their own economy and their own society and the, and the challenges that they're facing rather than saying, well, China has always behaved this way. No, China has not always behaved this way. Um, it, it's, it's, it's sort of given up the, uh, the sort of positive uh, sort of view that, that it really had in, 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 in its forefront just, me, just uh, after the turn of the century, even then. Uh, and, and if you and if you and you can see that attitude is tracing back from uh, Nixon's opening to China and Deng Xiaoping and all the rest here, none of them pulled this sort of stuff. It was always it was always in the reverse. Now it was a different situation where both China and the U.S. were had a mutual interest uh, in order to counter the Soviet Union. But with you could argue that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, China has less to worry about. Uh, about that as well, now as than it did before. Well, I mean, you, you, you kind make, of have the same thing happen during the global war on terror. So, you know, the, the, the reason that the U.S. is pivoting now back to China is because the global war on terror is is petering out. They're actually withdrawing from Afghanistan, right. which, which, you know, is, is a major change. And so now that you don't have the global war on terror, which, by the way, brought China back over closer to the United States because it was something that everyone could rally around. Sure. Everybody was against it. And you do have, you know, the, the issue of the terrorism in the Asian region. I mean, down in the Philippines. I mean, there's there's significant potential for a resurgence of, of Islamic terrorism in the Philippines and potentially in China, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is why you have the issue with the Uyghurs. And you just have all of these other issues floating back over. And then once, you know, when you have a threat that's outside of, of everybody's line of vision, everybody bands together, fights against the threat, they, they put aside their differences, everybody has, you know, a, a different view. And then once that's over, and once it's more or less resolved, it's not completely resolved, but it certainly has been mitigated to some degree, then you go back and you look at your own self-interest and you're like, you know what, I'm China, I'm in charge of this part of the world. Asia is is ours to dominate in terms of the future that we see for Asia. We want to make sure that our interests are protected. We want to make sure that we are the entity that everyone looks to to set the vision for what's going to happen in Asia, not the United States. The United States can go play with Europe and do what they want to do, but Asia belongs to China, and that's their view. And and that's what's playing out right now. And and un, you know they have they have home court advantage. Sure. So, the United States is going to have to spend an incredible amount of money Yay. in order to gain a foothold and gain a position where, where economically they can have enough of a presence. Diplomatically, they can maintain and enhance the relationships that they have in the region, and militarily, so they can keep up because China is just buying military assets at this incredible pace now. They they haven't caught up with the United States on that no. level yet, no, but well. on some individual, you know, in some areas they have caught up and exceeded. Overall, of course, the United States is way stronger militarily, and we spend a much larger portion of, of our annual budget on military, but China is rapidly getting up there, and then the question is once they do have that capability, which they're very close to having, mm -hmm. What do they want to do with that power? Do they well, I, then step forward and say, we're going to change the rules of the game, and they're going to be our rules well, now instead I, of your rules? I would argue that they're, they're, that they're not that, that close to dealing it. And there's a number of, in, in, of um, in, uh, inherent uh, problems they have that will prevent them from doing so. I mean, yes, they have a large economy, but their per capita is, is uh, income is still you know, on the level of some of the most poorest countries in the world. And 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 I and I do. They have I, a bigger GDP than the United States, and they certainly have a population that's you know industrious enough. And if they, if they keep on in terms of productivity, they uh, I wouldn't put well, it past them in the next five again, years. Again, that's the that's the extrapolation from the last couple of decades when the most uh, when the uh, biggest chunk of their population was the most productive. Uh, Generations and they're hitting for as a demographic time bomb because the succeeding mm -hmm. generations are much smaller and they have to support a larger, more productive class here. But so it, it's it's uh, you know the um, uh, you know call, call me an inherent skeptic of this one, having lived into the Japan will take over the world uh, phenomena and having devoured those books. 
and starting reading. Actually, I found myself reading the same authors now about about China taking over that I read, who had issued previous books about Japan taking over. You know, so. But as Deng Xiaoping once said, "What if, um, what if the Asian century, Asian century doesn't arrive?" So, um, you know, it, it, in any event, I, I, we, we've, this has been a, a wonderful, uh, 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 interesting, broad-ranging uh, discussion, Ginger. And and uh, uh, in these last um, in these last uh, few minutes here, I did want to ask uh, a couple questions about about the future of the Middle East. We sort of touched on it. But you know, there, there's a region that's going through changes here. The U.S. is uh, as uh, evacuating from um, uh, or leaving uh, leaving Afghanistan. Uh, it still maintains some sort of military presence in, in the region, of course. Uh, I was I was I was I was what I was incredibly depressed to hear that these seven-star hotels in Dubai are suffering from tourist traffic. You know, I haven't made it, made it there. But what's that big hotel in, the, in like, the sale in Dubai, that, um, the major one? Yeah, Jumeirah owns it. Um, I, I you forgot know, you the know name talking, it. You know what I'm talking about. So, so that, that's one of, my, one of my places to visit. But what is your sense about, uh, uh, thumbnail sketch for how the region is? I mean, you, you, uh, you have a headquarters in Beirut. You were, uh, uh, you were um, um, there when the, the port exploded. Uh, and uh, you've encountered a number of interesting events. So uh, not not to get too grander because we only have six minutes left in the broadcast. But you know, uh, uh, you, having um, having you uh, um, come in and from from a region of the news here, just just briefly, what your take is on where that is and where that might be going. Well, you know, so with the Arab Spring, that sort of threw, threw all the, the potential outcomes on the table. Uh, the Arab Spring was not successful. Uh, it created a lot of hope, and then it all got dashed. And you've had an extensive amount of failure by many of the countries who are just completely unable to handle the explosion in population, the economic depression, and just, you know, the, the complete incompetence of, of governance all across the Middle East. I mean, the, the, the level of incompetence at the, at the government level is, is worse than it's ever been. I mean, and the shining example of that, of course, is Lebanon, where you just, you know, the, the entire government has completely collapsed, and they've resorted now to name-calling like, like five-year-olds, and people are, are going hungry and, and starving in the streets, and, and you know, the economy's collapsed. The, mm. the value of their money is, is devalued by 800%, and, and it just and this is the, the case in so many of the countries in the Middle East. So the question is, what's going to happen next? So mm. the United States is pulling back because, uh, you know, Afghanistan was a war that we could have never won. It, unless the United States felt like giving... Uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars to Afghanistan forever, it was never going to be able to prop up the system that it was trying to prop up. So so they're pulling out now. And the military presence of the United States in the Middle East to counter ISIS and to counter uh, external threats and to counter terrorists that want to attack the West is critically important. And, and the United States and NATO and, and other powers will have to maintain a presence, a strategic presence, an intelligence presence, a military presence, in order to protect the world from from that resurging. But the sadder part is, as renewable energy continues to rise, as solar panels get cheaper, as anything except oil starts to take over Mm -hmm. on the global economic scale, the one thing that was propping up the Middle East, which was already just full of problems, from lack of governance to you know poor rule of law to massive corruption, out of control corruption, the one saving grace was that everybody in the world needed oil, and they had it, and they were exporting it, and and it was the one thing that was keeping everything afloat, and it's continuing. I mean, oil prices are back up, and people are still driving cars and and getting their gasoline at the pumps, but as we see this push, I mean. President Biden's been at the forefront of it. Uh, Europe is also really pushing. I think in the next 10 years, you're going to see real, actual progress toward economical alternative energy. And once uh, that actually, happens, actually, Ginger, the happy and the oil economy falls out, uh, it's going to be 
dangerous what happens in the Middle East. And Ginger, as, a, as, a, as an indication, of the one, one uh, phrase that I've noticed in, that has gone into the lexicon of discussion is, quote, decarbonized energy, end quote. So, yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's going to be, uh, once, uh, once selling oil is not the panacea for all of the other problems that mm-hmm. are just plaguing that part of the world, I just fear that the amount of poverty and the amount of discontent is going to manifest even more than it currently is, mm. and the rest of the world is going to have to really understand what needs to happen because that threat will, will not remain within the borders. That threat will spill over the borders, and the anger and the and the you know disillusion and and the, just the sheer misery of people in these in these parts of the world it is going to become a problem that everyone's going to have to face and deal with. Ginger, thank you so much for uh, joining us this evening. Um, usually when I get to this point in the program, I have to um, um, uh, apologize for talking too much. And for that reason, I turn over the mic to my guests for the last bit here. But frankly, I don't think I have much to apologize for. And I'm very <laughs> grateful for that. But I, I will leave you, uh, veteran, legendary broadcaster that you are, I will leave you with the last minute to impart to a listening audience whatever final comments are or uh, pearls of wisdom you wish to impart to them before we head for the CBS Radio News at the top of the hour. Well, first, I just wanted to thank you, Ty. Um, you know, you've always been somebody who, who has brought up these deep thoughts and, and really keeps it on, on the forefront of people's minds, and I think that is an amazing trait and quality, and I thank you for continuing to do that, and I thank you for the time. This has been really humbling. I, I love being able to talk about this. And, and I think if I could leave everybody with one thought, it would be think big. Uh, this isn't a time you have one life to live you have a number of years that that god gave us all on the planet and that's it right i mean it's you've got to live your your years as best as you can and contribute as best as you can to making the world a better place in the time that you're here and one of the best ways to do that is thinking big and thinking big for the next generation you know the last couple of generations there's been this this look back to say, you know, are, are these the first generations who've not done as well as their parents? Or are they actually not getting as many opportunities to do things as maybe their parents did? And the fact that that's even a question is it, really sad because because the world should really be on the upswing, and, and COVID has given us all time to pause. Well, thank you. We inspired to think big, and we hit the CBS Radio News. So see you. Right. I'll talk to you later, Ginger. Okay. All right, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye.